Good morning, everyone. Good morning for those I haven't met. My name is Adam Brago, and it's a privilege to serve as an elder here at Missio Church. I want to welcome you again this morning and invite you to, to join me in turning to Psalm 10 as we continue our series through the Psalms. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, hopefully there's one near you you could grab in the pew, or the words will also be up on the screen. I want to invite you to, to read along, and it is our firm belief that it is through the Word of God that the Spirit of God does satisfy our souls as we wait on Him, as we just sang about. And so we turn to His Scriptures to seek His instruction and His guidance and the satisfaction of our very souls. Let's read Psalm 10. These are the words of the true and living God. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul. And the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning as your people in the name of our Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ. And our desire as your people is to exalt you this morning, to honor you. And so we, as we open your word, we do so looking to you for your instruction, for your teaching, for your encouragement, for you to convict us of where we've erred, where we've sinned, so that we might be a people who honor you. And so we ask you to shape us this morning that all our actions and all our thoughts, that everything we say would be honoring to you. 
And so we, we pray for your spirit to guide us and teach us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, last week, uh, Levi taught through Psalm 9, and he explained that there's a strong connection between Psalm 9 that we read last week and Psalm 10 that we just read here. Because these two Psalms together make up an acrostic using the Hebrew alphabet. So the first letter of each verse is a letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and the next verse starts with the next letter, and so on. And so it connects these two Psalms together, but they're also connected by this theme of God being a just and righteous judge. If we were to look back into nine, we would see in seven and eight, these words that the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. And that's the theme that carries through Psalm 9. And it's a, a song of praise where it begins, I will give thanks. In verse 11, he calls others to sing praises to the Lord because of this attribute of God that he is a just and righteous judge. And then when we get to 10, there's this noticeable shift that happens. While it's going to continue the theme of justice, it turns from a song of praise to a song or a prayer of lament. Psalm 9 praises God for his justice, while Psalm 10 laments the injustice that is committed against the the vulnerable. And so I think just to note briefly this juxtaposition that we have in both of these psalms, on the one hand, a psalm of praise, which helps us, gives voice to our celebration of God for who he is and for all the good that we have in him. And so we sing Psalm 9, a song of praise. But psalms of lament like 10 give voice to struggle and to suffering, to the pain that we experience in this world. And the reality is life is full of both, is it not? Of both times of good and struggle, of both moments of celebration, right, and of lament. And so we need both Psalm 9 and Psalm 10. But as we've said so often, Psalms of lament are underutilized, right? We're not sure really the place that they fit in within our Christian liturgy or within, simply within our prayers to God. And so I think it's important that we take note what takes place here in this psalm. Because we do see in verse one, clearly this is a lament. He's crying out to God, why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And the trouble that he's speaking of, unlike previous psalms, is not trouble that he's experiencing personally, right, as a result of his enemies persecuting him. The trouble that he is so concerned about is the injustice that he sees taking place in the world, specifically the ones he calls wicked, who are oppressing the one he identifies as poor, helpless, fatherless, innocent. And so he's lamenting this injustice. And I know that the topic of justice can certainly bring out a variety of convictions, And opinions, especially if if we were to discuss the role of the church in addressing injustice in our society, right, there may be some very strong convictions and feelings and opinions about what that were to look like. And so my goal this morning is not going to be to present a comprehensive understanding of the elders' view of justice and injustice, because I don't think that's what this passage does. My goal is to represent what I believe God is saying through his word in this 
psalm. And I think this psalm does address for us, one, why should we care about injustice? And two, I think it lays an important foundation. Again, it's not gonna give a full plan for how the people of God address injustice in this world, but it's going to lay an important foundation for how we do address and think about the injustice that we see experienced by the vulnerable in this world. And so I know this is one of those sermons, most likely it's a yeah, but sermon, right? Where there's some who are concerned when we hear phrases like social gospel or when we talk about the good works of caring for those in need, there's a concern by some that we're gonna replace the centrality of our belief, which is faith in Christ, right? Disproportionately and focus on good works. And so some are concerned about that and you'll walk away thinking, yeah, but that's not the most important thing. There's others who, as soon as we begin talking about justice or injustice, begin to feel a sense of passion and engagement. And that's some of what you've devoted your life to is helping those who are vulnerable. And there's a chance that you may be frustrated because we're not going to lay out a plan for solving the injustices of Syracuse. But I do think this is going to lay an important foundation for you. And I know there's some who, who struggle to trust or believe in God because of this very thing where you look at verse one and you say, yes, I struggle to trust God because I say, why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And I believe this psalm will speak to you as well and highlight for you the very character and nature of our just God. So start with, I think it's important to set the stage for what we mean by justice or injustice. And I I think very simply, what justice is, is giving people their due. When somebody commits a crime, we often think about justice in terms of the criminal justice system. If somebody commits a crime, right, we hope and expect that they receive punishment which fits the crime. If they don't, if they receive less than what they deserve or more than what they deserve, then that is considered to be an injustice. But biblical justice is concerned about more than just punishing wrongdoing. Biblical justice is about giving people the respect that they deserve. And so I heard this definition recently, and I think it's helpful. John Piper described injustice as the gap between the respect that someone deserves and the respect that he or she is given. Now off the bat, that can be a little bit controversial because who decides what is deserved or not deserved? And that's part of the reason the conversation, I think, around justice today is so contentious and at times confusing because there are different convictions about who deserves what. And as Christians, we believe that God, in the act of creation, And through giving us his word has set those standards for us. That everyone deserves equal respect because he created us in his image. Regardless of where we're born, regardless of the opportunities we're given, everyone deserving of equal respect because we're made in the image of God. But on top of that foundation, what we see in the scriptures is that God lays these additional expectations or understandings of what it looks like to respect others, to give them the respect that they deserve, that there are situations where we're to extend additional respect to certain people or in certain situations. For example, within the family, God makes it clear how we're to honor our parents and show them special respect. 
describes how parents are to treat their children, how husbands are to treat wives, wives to treat husbands. Within the church, we're given a number of these one another commands that set the standard for the respect that we're to give to each other for how we are to treat one another. And so a violation of that is to commit injustice because it violates God's design, his commands for the way we're, we're to relate to one another. But when you look at the idea of justice, especially in the Old Testament, over and over and over again, justice describes taking care of widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor. Sometimes that's referred to the quartet of the vulnerable because it appears so many times in the scriptures. We believe all are made in God's image and so all are deserving of dignity and respect, yet God makes it very clear that this is a group that is unprotected, that is prone to experiencing injustice, so God sets additional expectations upon his people. And in the books of the law, what we see is God gives many commands for how his people are to care for the poor, the orphan, the widow, the fatherless. That in the prophets, God rebukes his people because they don't uphold those commands and they lack justice, right? They lack care for those who are vulnerable in their midst, We see through the scriptures one of the negative attributes that God uses to describe wicked leaders is that they lack justice for the vulnerable. And then on the other hand, one of the esteemed attributes of God that the scriptures hold up is his care and provision for those who are vulnerable and experiencing injustice. And this is precisely what the writer of this psalm is lamenting. That after in Psalm 9 praising God for his justice, he's lamenting now the painful reality that he sees in the world. And so verse 2 through 11, we have this description of injustice, essentially being that the vulnerable are being oppressed for the sake of personal gain. Verse 2, right, he says, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Down in verse 7, he describes the, the condition of the wicked that having mouths filled with cursing and deceit and oppression under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. Verses eight and nine, he gives us this metaphor which paints a picture of what injustice looks like as predator seeking after prey. He says in verse eight, he sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. And then in verse 10, he's The wicked is successful in his pursuit of the poor, and it says the helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. So he vividly describes the scene that he sees playing out the oppression of those who are vulnerable. He only describes what it looks like. He also describes the inward motivation, the very root causes of this injustice. And he identifies them as two things. Number one, that it's the pride of the wicked that leads them to injustice. And number two, it's the greed of the wicked that leads them to injustice. Right, he says in two, it's an arrogance. And three, that the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul. Four, that it's in the pride of his face that he does this. Five, that as he thinks about his foes, he puffs at them. That he says in his heart in verse 6, I shall not be moved. The underlying condition of those oppressing the poor, he says, is one of pride. 
when he thinks about his relationship to them. And I heard somebody describe once this pathway to oppression, and if I remember who said it, I would quote them, but essentially he said that the first step is one of separation, right? Identifying that we're different. The creation of an us versus them, which then opens the door for pride to take over, right? Where the second step then moving from separation is to elevation over others. Pride, that not only are we different, but, but we or I am better than which gives permission then for a forms of passive oppression where now I, because I'm, I'm better than you, I have no problem stepping over you, neglecting you in order to meet my needs ahead of yours, which gives way lastly to active oppression. Not only am I willing to step over you and neglect you, but I can step on you and abuse you for the sake of personal gain, right? That's where pride leads the wicked. And number two, it's greed. It says in verse three, second half, that the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. Greed drives people to commit great wrongs against others. The desire for more and the willingness to harm others in the process of obtaining it. And so these verses two through 11 paint this sorrowful picture of the reality of oppression and injustice committed by one human against another as a result of pride and greed. And if we look around our world, certainly we have no lack of examples. I mean, anywhere in our city, anywhere we have refugees coming from, you can trace their arrival here back to oppression of the vulnerable where they came from. Whether that's Nepal and Bhutan or Myanmar or the Congo, or Somalia, or Iraq, or Syria, as a result of their ethnicity, their religion, their appearance, frankly, most of it comes down to where they were born, which they have zero control over. And yet they're oppressed, right, at the risk of their lives and torture. And so they're here in our city. And the truth is because in our country, we we don't experience, not that we haven't, but we don't experience genocide or oppression anywhere near the scope of what these other countries experience. And yet we don't need to look beyond our own city to see the challenges faced today by those who are poor and fatherless. And we know the statistics that Syracuse has some of the highest rates of poverty. As of just a few years ago, had the highest rate of concentrated poverty among blacks and Hispanics in the 100 largest metropolitan areas in the United States. We know that nearly half, one out of every two kids in Syracuse live below the poverty line compared to 15% across our state and nation. And we see the reality that the highest levels of poverty in our city are concentrated in certain neighborhoods, which is the case in a lot of cities in the Northeast. But the reason I bring it up is because these demographics, these dynamics in our city today are directly the result of discrimination and oppression in our past. And if we go back to the 1930s, a federal program called the Home Owners Loan Corporation instituted what became known as redlining, where they, they graded 239 cities across the United States and produced maps 
with color coding, if you put the map up. This is the map that was created in 1937 of Syracuse with certain color codes. I know you can't see all the details, but green is the best. Blue means it's still desirable. Yellow means declining, and red is coded as hazardous. And this is what became known as redlining, that the practice where banks would not give loans or would give loans at an extremely high rate to those areas in red. And the reason an area would be coded as red included in part the condition of the housing that was already there, but it was also coded as red because of the presence of African Americans and because of an influx of foreigners. These neighborhoods were described in this actual paperwork as having an influx of lower-grade population, which included, again, at the, describing at the time, Negroes, Jews, and foreign-born whites. So these areas were then denied access to capital investment to improve their housing and to create economic opportunity for those who were living in those neighborhoods. Last year, the New Times featured an article which described the conditions of this city in the 1950s specifically in the 15th Ward, which was just south and east of downtown, where after World War II, many displaced refugees, African-Americans moved north to find work and to escape discrimination of the South, and they were given little to no choice in regards to where they lived. So where do you think they ended up living? In these red areas, right? Where this is a quote from the Post Standard in 1954, where one real estate agent says this, Negroes are just not shown houses for sale. We have about 700 listings. So this was at the time in 1954, 700 listings that run anywhere from Fayetteville in the east to Camillus on the west, from Liverpool in the north to Nedro on the south. There's no outspoken discrimination. It's a subtle thing. If they, meaning a real estate agent, get a Negro who wants a house, they show him a house in the slum area or the semi-slum area, so red or yellow, and tell them that's all there is. Real estate dealers in this city will sell Negroes' house in the 15th Ward, and it's immediate area, but they don't show houses through the university area. If they sold a Negro a house in Westvale, there would be the devil to pay. And the same thing goes for DeWitt. The chairman of Eastside Housing in Syracuse at the time told the Post Standard in 1954, he was definitely against Negroes living in white neighborhoods. The value of property goes down when they move in. When he asked what he thought should be done to help individuals living in the 15th Ward, these red area, he added, I'm very much interested in a plan to help them out, but human nature is human nature, and you've just got to accept it. So these practices essentially sealed the fate of these neighborhoods as segregated and poor. And studies have shown that most of the neighborhoods coded in red in the 1930s are mostly occupied by minorities and have the highest rates of poverty today. And that almost all, 85% of the blue areas on this map today are middle to upper income. And so this map reflects institutionalized discrimination and oppression of the poor in our own city. And thankfully, laws have changed, redlining is banned in the 60s, but the conditions of these neighborhoods have not. Right? One of those neighborhoods, again, I know you can't see it, but where we are, the Park Avenue neighborhood, is red. Skitty Park, where the next neighborhood to the south, where we spend a lot of our time and ministry efforts, is red. 
Here in this neighborhood, 50% still live below the poverty line compared to 33% across the whole city. In this very neighborhood, 77% is renter-occupied compared to 62% across the city. And so why should we care? Yes, I want you to understand this is right here. This is our neighborhood. This is our backyard. But why should we care when we see such injustice, just as this writer sees such injustice? And I want to suggest that injustice against others as described in this psalm, always involves injustice against God. That in pride, right, the oppressor thinks that he's better than the one that he's oppressing. That's why he's able to do that, because he believes that he's better than that individual. But the oppressor is also, and primarily, proud and arrogant towards God. Verse four, his, all his thoughts are, there is no God. Verse 11, he says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. So we should care because injustice is a rejection of God's authority and a failure to steward the authority that he has given to us. That's why we should care. As Bernie described in Genesis chapter one a few weeks ago, when God said, right, these words, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. We see part of the issue with injustice. It is a rejection of God's authority where pride comes from forgetting that rich and poor are created by the same God. We didn't create ourselves. We didn't choose which family to be born into or the opportunities that we would be given. And so when we move out from under or we attempt to move out from under God's authority, then we quite easily elevate ourselves over others. So it's a rejection of God's authority. Number two, it's a failure to steward because we were given dominion, Genesis says, to take care of God's creation. He's the one who created it all. He has the ultimate say, the ultimate authority, and yet he chose, after making us in his image, to give us authority and command us to fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. He gave us authority to care for his creation in such a way that it would honor and glorify him. And so injustice is a failure to steward the authority that God has given to us. See, when God frees his people from slavery in Egypt, he gives them his presence, most importantly, as he dwells among them in the temple and in the tabernacle. But he also gives them land, and he gives them laws, and those laws are to govern their relationship with him, with others, and how they take care of what God has entrusted to them. And so over and over again, we see God's commands to care for those who are sojourners or refugees, to care for those who are poor, who are fatherless, because he's provided them with this land, and that's a means that he wants to use through their generosity to take care of them. Look at these examples, Exodus 23. You shall not oppress a sojourner. Why? You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. There was a day you had nothing. And God rescued you. For six years, he says, you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But the seventh year, you shall let it rest and lie fallow that the poor of your people may eat. And what they leave, the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. 
God's saying, these these things are yours now. This is your vineyard. This is your orchard. But remember, you were once sojourners. You had nothing. Deuteronomy 15. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. Again, this is the, he's reminding them, this is the land that your Lord your God is giving you. Don't harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. Verse eight, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart. And you say the seventh year, the year of release is near and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother and you give him nothing. And he cry to the Lord against you and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him for this, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, to the poor in your land. What he's saying is what you have is not your own, so be generous. One more, Deuteronomy 24, you shall not pervert the justice Due to the sojourner or to the fatherless, or take a widow's garment and pledge, but you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. I know that there are very few in this room who are farmers. When was the last time you forgot a sheaf in your field? Probably never. When was the last time you beat an olive tree? I'm guessing never. Maybe some of you have gathered grapes. But the principles of this passage still apply. What he's saying is that in stewarding what God has entrusted, be intentionally inefficient. That's what he's saying. So when you go through your field, he's saying to, to a farming society, and you leave some behind, don't be so concerned to get every last ounce of what I've given you. Leave it there. Same thing for your olive tree. Same thing for your grapes. Be intentionally inefficient. Don't consume everything that I've given you, the very last drop to be used for yourself and for your own needs and desires. Same principle still applies. And so the injustice that's described is failed stewardship of what God has given to us. It says, essentially, I'm going to use everything that I've been given didn't deserve, but blessed with by the Lord. I'm going to use all of that for me. And then I'm also going to take some of what God has given to you in order to satisfy me even more. Now, we should care. Always. Because as the people of God, we acknowledge that injustice always involves injustice against God. And that it's a failure to steward what he has given But what should we do? And I'll be the first to admit the solutions are not simple. And this passage does not attempt to do that, to lay out all of the solutions to us as a people of God caring for those in need. 
but the foundation that it lays is very solid and should enable us to build from there. What do we do? Well, I think we learn from the example, the negative example that's described here of the wicked. By one, relating to others as equals under the authority of God and stewarding what he has entrusted to us for the good of others. That's what the wicked fail to do. As a result of their pride, they do not relate to others as equals under the authority of God. As a result of their greed, they do not steward what he has entrusted. So the call for us as the people of God, in this instance, is to avoid the negative example of the wicked. Number two, I think it's to approach injustice with humility. If we were to raise our hands, how many have ever been guilty of pride? Everybody in the room. How many have ever been guilty of greed? You you thought about, you wanted, you desired, you went after something that really didn't belong to you. Every one of us guilty of both pride and greed. Therefore, very susceptible to committing injustice. So we should approach injustice with humility because we recognize none of us can say, I would never. None of us could say, I have never. Because what, according to the psalmist, the root of injustice is both pride and greed and all of us, myself included, have committed those. And so we should approach injustice with humility which helps us to avoid any trap of a hero mentality that that we are the answer. Number three, we should do as this psalm does, which is to lament. Injustice should invoke passion, hurt, sadness, anger. What lament does, it orients all of those things towards God in the midst of the pain and suffering in this world. We're tempted oftentimes to act, right? Those who our passion about injustice, our temptation is to act and to create solutions, but we've got to be careful of doing that apart from the God of justice. When we do act, then lament helps to ground everything we do and think and say in God's attributes and God's actions. Again, we're not taught, we're not given solutions to poverty in this passage, but we are taught to lament. And so rather than just springing into action, rather than just trying to be a hero and coming in with our resources and our ideas, lament recognizes that justice depends first and ultimately on God. Yes, we have a part to play in it, but it takes our natural response of grief and pain and it directs it towards him and then roots whatever we do in his character. Because it includes, as we see in verses 12 through 14, this call to action, this prayer for God to intervene, right? Arise, O Lord, O O God, lift up your hand, forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But he says, here's the reality, God, you do see. For you note mischief and vexation that you may take it into your hands. And so to you, the helpless commits himself. You've been the helper of the fatherless. And so part of that lament then is turning right, to God and crying out for him to act under the realization that he does see all of it, though it may appear to some that God doesn't notice. He does see. He takes it into his hands and he is fully trustworthy by those who are helpless. They can commit themselves to him, he says. 
why don't we, and it's my experience as well personally, why don't we lament? Perhaps we don't lament like this, perhaps because we don't care. And we've addressed that. Or maybe we do care, but we've forgotten that God cares even more than we do. And so we foolishly engage in our own strength. Or maybe, which I think is often the case, it's something we've not been encouraged to do. We've not experienced as a community what it is to lament. And so in lamenting, what we do is we're placing our trust not in what we're able to do, but in what God is able to do. And so number four, I think we trust in his attributes and his actions as a just God. Because look what verse 16 through 18, how it describes, right? There's this assurance of God's justice. He says the Lord, he's no longer asking him to act. He says the Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. Oh Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. He's confident that he's going to act. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Look at these characteristics of God's response to injustice. One, he's fully aware, verse 14, but you do see. The injustice faced even in this neighborhood is overwhelming because we're unable with our human limitations to fully see and to fully understand what people are experiencing and going through, but God is fully aware. You do see. He's trustworthy. We don't have to worry about how he's going to use his power, if he's going to abuse it, to you the helpless commits himself. He's fully trustworthy when he engages in justice. He's powerful. Verse 15 is a cry, break the arm of the wicked. He's saying, do away with the power of the wicked. Overwhelm the wicked. Call his wickedness to account. Verse 16, the Lord is king. He's powerful. He has what it takes. He has the ability, the authority, the means to address injustice. Oftentimes we feel overwhelmed by it, unable to figure it out, unable to create lasting solutions. When he's powerful, he's compassionate. In 17, Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You strengthen their heart. You incline your ear. He cares. And lastly, his solution, his response is comprehensive and complete if you look at the very last line, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. That the terror that he describes in verse one, he's saying God has a final and ultimate solution. That when God acts in justice, it will be complete. It all will be restored. He will judge perfectly. And those who are oppressed will be lifted up. He is, in his justice, a perfect blend of all of these attributes. I mean, some may have power, may be in position to be able to implement change, but don't have compassion, don't care. Some may have compassion and care about those in need, but don't have the power, the authority to to be able to enact any change. And yet God is both powerful and compassionate. And so lament turns us towards him. It turns us towards God, which is everything. 
because his response to injustice is absolutely perfect in every way. And how much more do we as the people of God in Christ have a great assurance as this writer expresses at the end because we have experienced the intervention of God in Christ on our behalf. That he wasn't indifferent to our suffering. He wasn't detached from our suffering. That he humbled himself, became a servant, came to this earth, suffered under great injustice when he was completely innocent, suffered and died. He became the oppressed and then overcame it victoriously in the resurrection. And so we, of all people, should care. Lamenting the injustice of this world while also being assured of the powerful, compassionate, complete justice of our King Jesus. And that's how we enter into the injustice of this world. Let's pray. God, we look to you as our creator, as our king, and as your people. We, we express that oftentimes we fail to submit to your authority, but it is our prayer that we would do so. So that we would not be proud, that we would not be arrogant, that we would not see ourselves as better than others, that we would be satisfied with all that you have given to us, that we, your people, would represent you well, would steward what you have given to us with generosity and with sacrifice because all that we have from you is more than enough. And so we pray that you would turn our hearts towards those that you care about, towards those who are vulnerable and oppressed. Pray that you would help us, God. Your spirit would remind us to lament when we experience and see injustice. Because ultimately, God, our assurance is in you, the great judge. And so we turn to you as your people. We thank you for how you have acted decisively on our behalf to rescue us from the oppression and the slavery of sin, to to free us in your son, Jesus Christ. We are a people who have experienced the freedom from injustice in you. And so may we be a people who work from that place of gratitude and generosity, having experienced that from you. And may we go into this world offering not our own strength, not our own ideas, but offering you and reconciliation with you, the one who is fully trustworthy, the one to whom the helpless can commit themselves, that everything that we do in this neighborhood, in this city, throughout the world, would direct people to you, the one who hears their desires, who strengthens their hearts, who inclines their ears to them, that they would find full satisfaction that only you can offer for their souls. We pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.